Hey gang, it's Sean Clements effectively doing a make good for my own podcast. Uh, you guys, if you listen regularly, you know I don't know what I'm doing. So um, for the Permanent Midnight episode, obviously it's based on a memoir by Jerry Stahl, who is a very well-established writer and who's being portrayed in the film. And that is primarily who we talked about when we mentioned the writer, but the screenplay of the film itself was written by David Velaz, who also directed it who we mentioned in passing, but I just wanted to put a little note on to give him credit as well for the scenes that we discuss since uh, kind of went down a little rabbit hole conversationally and maybe forgot to do that during the show. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to Subtitles on the only podcast about movies. You know, we've been talking about movies on the podcast and people have been saying, I love this. Why hasn't anyone else done this? And I've been saying, because someone has to be first. <laughs> the fact that it's me, I don't think like I'm special. I'm some genius. What I think is... We're in an interesting time and we need to find a new path forward. And part of that path is going to be sitting down and talking about movies, specifically talking about the writing of the movies and the movies about writers and the writers who wrote the movie and the movie that got written. And today, the movie about a writer that we're going to talk about is called Permanent Midnight. The show is subtitles on, by the way, because we do keep the subtitles on, because we do read the movie, because the movie was written and therefore meant to be read. And I have with me today Leslie Arfin, and Leslie has written for Girls. She mm -hmm. co-created Love. Do you want to drop any other, anything else you want people to associate you with? Um, Betty, it was a skateboarding show. Betty, the skateboarding show. On HBO. On HBO. <laughs> Um, I worked on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Heard of it. Got fired. I worked on Portlandia. Yeah. Got fired. Got fired. <laughs> Portlandia. But you know. That's a tough room. Those are tough, tough rooms. rooms. They're all, totally. Tough to keep a job in those rooms. Also, you know, I played a part. As we will discuss. We, hey, we're all responsible totally. for, you know, parts of our journey. But also sometimes it's a tough on? room. Oh my God. I mean, fucking Portlandia. I've never written a sketch in my life. Well, I told them that. Might not have been an <laughs> ideal hire. No. <laughs> Speaking of someone who was never even considered for a job on that show and has written so oh, many 200 sketches. I know. <laughs> but hey, hey, they wanted an outside voice, right? They wanted someone more unique. They didn't want the same old formulaic sketch writing that I would do. No, Carrie told me. We need help with endings. I was okay. like, what do you mean? <laughs> How to end the sketch. Yeah. I was like. I'll help I you end my career. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously. I was like, I'll, I'll do my best. I don't. Mm -hmm. I was totally transparent. Can't get out of the sketch. Well, that's good. That's. Yeah, I was very, cool. very nervous. I would, you know the feeling, you probably don't know this feeling. I know this feeling, it's so familiar to me where you just like make a joke to a room and it is just, just death on the dance floor. 
It just lays there and it's so ugly. Well, you don't know this, but I told a story. I told a story on I, one of the recent episodes. I heard about, it. I yeah. remember. Yeah. yeah. And that was during a general meeting. It, well, it was during an interview, a an job interview, interview. Right. But you yeah. didn't have to go back in the next day. No, I was no, I was not presented with that, that as an to option. Me like every, <laughs> right. Yeah, you know, I was trying good, to get to be allowed to go back in the next day. The best thing about that story was that, like, you found out very fast that they were not the people you wanted. That to work was with. that was a blessing that I didn't describe. So anyone in the Barton Fink episode, I talked about the worst uh, kind of meeting I ever had. It was a job interview where I made a joke that they hated and didn't get. And I did have the feeling of sometimes it's good to do this yeah. because if they don't like this and can't connect to it, I am not going, none of us will have a good time in exactly. the Exactly. And also eat a little humble pie. It's, it's good for you. You know, you went in a little too cocky with mm -hmm. doing a bit in an interview. Now it worked. Well, you should. I did, I've done a lot of bits of you're, interviews. You're That's right. Who, you're the comedy. people should want to do a bit with me. No, totally. You're right. If we're gonna if we're gonna work on a comedy show together, right. they should be interested in doing a bit with me. That's a good point. I mean, you are. That's true for a comedy guy. Like I backed you down. Yeah, <laughs> I'm so not that person. And if somebody started doing a bit with me, then again, I don't know if it was funny. I guess I, I'm. And that's where I went wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and that I will own. It could have been a funny bit. I thought yeah. the story with David Goodman was very, very endearing. And it made me, I was, I like love that story when mm -hmm. that bit didn't, that when that killed. And he was like, mm -hmm. I guess you guys fucked up. You really fucked up this interview. I was like, yeah. this is a great story. Yeah, he's a nice guy. Um, okay, uh, and let's see if he can handle this. Oh, no, wait. no, no, don't apologize. But we, but we, because this is exactly the kind of thing we're going to talk about. But let's get a little bit into the, Movie. The movie is called Permanent Midnight. Wait. It is based on the memoir by Jerry Stahl. You have something to say. I do, because I just want to drop this one thing is that like Jerry Stahl, I also wrote a book that is a memoir about drug addiction. Uh huh. It's called Dear Diary. OK. It was never made in a movie into a movie or a TV show, Not for nor is trying. it on Audible. Yeah. But if you do want to buy it on Amazon, it probably there's a hardcover version for probably like eighty five dollars yeah. <laughs> and there's one left it's it's okay but yeah i just want to um promote that yeah please buy buy the 85 dollar book came and out in like 2011 or 2010 i i i, I wish i read it 2007 actually it's it's fine. Well, and you were late to the party because Jerry Stahl had already eaten your yeah. lunch and there was just <laughs> there was nothing left in the fridge by the mm -hmm. time you showed up. Uh, so Jerry Stahl wrote this book called Permanent Midnight. Right. Um, a little bit of his background. His father was some big like attorney general or something. And then he went to a private school in the Philadelphia area then went to Columbia, bummed around Europe, moved to New York, won a fiction prize, was making cash, writing for Hustler, writing like porn magazine story. It was like the humor editor for porn magazines. That reads. And then ended up in California. Uh, in the movie, he says he moved to California because things were getting so dark in New York that he wanted to get away from the drug scene and ended up in an even worse spot. But he moved to California and wrote for ALF, uh, most prominently and most successfully, I guess, then Moonlighting, all while he was actively a very serious drug addict, which is what his book is about. 
and then wrote for Twin Peaks. And I found a quote from yes. the Twin Peaks co-creator, Mark Frost, yes. who described his work on the show as, quote, an absolute car wreck. He turned in a completely incomprehensible, unusable, incomplete script a few days late. And as I recall, there were bloodstains on it. Yes. So uh, he had this career where he kind of like took off and was given a lot of money and opportunity, but he was an active drug addict and it sidelined him. Uh, ultimately, he cleaned up wrote the memoir and has since written some movies and and swoops in to do CSI episodes sometimes. But uh, I am a sober addict, um, mm -hmm. as are you. You mentioned the memoir that you wrote. And so I thought it would be interesting to talk about this movie with you. Um, and it'll be a somewhat unique episode, I think, for mm -hmm. this show, because we'll talk a little bit about our experiences. Although I think both of us had stopped using drugs before we started writing television and uh film I, I know i i did correct by a long spot before i got into entertainment at all yes that said though i would say that i didn't drink or do heroin mm -hmm. and i haven't done either of those things in 23 years mm -hmm. but I don't think I was totally as sober as I said I was at the time. And we can talk about that because I didn't yeah. realize that or I wouldn't admit it. Well, that's that. And that is something I'd like to talk about, because yeah. although these experiences don't directly reflect right. mine, I think the mentality of addiction and the disease of addiction is, of course, still present in some ways and and certainly early on in my career would rear its head in different ways so while i wasn't using i was doing behaviors that i associate with mm -hmm. the disease of addiction that um did impact my career in negative ways the same way that his active use did mm -hmm. um and i will bring up just at the very top as we talk about sobriety i've said this in other venues but if people are whatever addicts looking for help, looking for recovery. We'll talk a little bit about recovery, it, it, you know, um, in terms of any kind of like 12 step program or mm -hmm. something, those are anonymous. They're anonymous for a reason. And something that I do like to say, which is something that I learned in, uh, in my recovery journey is it's not anonymous in order to protect an individual. So nobody knows that they're an addict. It is anonymous in order to protect AA. the program. Yes. So that no one says like, oh, well, Leslie and Sean right. are Mr. and Mrs. Right. AA. Right. And then any behavior that we do represents the program. So then if I, you know, next week show up right. and I'm drinking and drugging, then somebody would go like, oh, well, I know that doesn't work. That's what he tried to do. So it is like it is just to say at the top yeah. if that stuff gets touched upon at all. I mean, yeah. I identify as an alcoholic and I am a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, I am not a spokesperson in any way, shape, or form mm -hmm. ever. Like I've been through, so we don't even have to use those words, but I yeah. do wanna. And they don't, and in the film, they do a good job of Jerry Stahl. He goes to a rehab in the movie and it says that he's sober, but there's right. no portrayal or mention of 12-step programs, although that is very often a part of people's uh, sobriety journey. Totally. There's many ways to do it. There's many ways to do the 12-step programs. Every, you know, there's, 
we wear like a loose garment and there's many levels to this. So my experience is mine and take I don't what speak you need for and it. leave what you You don't. take what you need and you throw the rest out the window. So the film itself opens with a voiceover from Jerry Stahl as he is uh he's played by Ben Stiller in this movie. Yes, I'm friends with him. Okay, um, wait. <laughs> <laughs> I once I once played drums with Ben Stiller. He would never know me. Mm-hmm. And it was at a New Year's Eve party. Couldn't at, be me. Wait, can I, wait, what'd you say? Couldn't be me. He would know me. <laughs> no, you guys are best friends. We're very, we're very You guys close. are like really close. And yeah. I just was really starstruck once at a New Year's Eve party where he was playing bong. Okay, I won't go into it unless you want me to because it is name droppy, but I will say he was playing bongos and I was singing and I, it's the, I've never me. had a be- better New Year's Eve. It was that sounds was, great, and I wish that was me because I, you know, I'm not a great singer, but I feel like I could have. I had to make I it up. Made some magic. No, Sean, I had to make it up on the spot. <laughs> okay, that's called Wait, improv. I, that's like what I fucking do. No, I like live that. I know, <laughs> and I don't. So it should and, have been me. I think we all agree. It should have, <laughs> I should have written for Portlandia. I should have been with the fucking Bongo New Year's Eve I know, party there's, singing. There's so many of like, my moments that should have been you. You're right. Doors. You wouldn't have biffed it. Actually, though, <laughs> that New Year's making up a song on the spot while Ben Stiller played bongos. I fucking nailed it, you dude. It. I could have fucking eaten the worst shit of my life. Yeah. And I... Nailed it. I've never been more high sober. A state Put of that flow. cherry on top. And that's what we search for. Yeah. Um, so Ben Stiller uh, portrays Jerry Stahl in the film. And it opens with him shooting heroin in a bathroom. And there's this VO about how drug addiction has essentially become trendy and embarrassing. <laughs> um, that he's just like these, it's sort of this, like these kids today, like right. they fucking get a habit instead, you know, like instead of going to prom or something like, like they don't know what it's like, but banging rock in your neck and your eyeball <laughs> at 6am. Yeah. Hookers. Well, that it was, that it was counterculture and cool. Right. And it's like a resentment of like, everybody else has found my thing. <laughs> and do you ever feel like a crusty elder statesman, <laughs> um, about, the world of like drugs and drug use. No, that is fucking bullshit. And if you do, you're wrong. Here's what I'll say. <laughs> when I when I see people, like I have known people in sobriety being whatever, 10, 15 years sober myself and seeing friends of mine in their 30s get really into smoking weed. And yeah. then that becomes like a huge part of their personality and they talk about it a lot. And I do go like, this was me in eighth grade. Yes. And I think it's so fucking corny. Yeah. And that's what I relate to about this. I I'm see. not like, I own like drug use, but I'm like, but. No, that like, shit is corny as hell. I've you need to get this. new friends. <laughs> I mean. No, it's people. It's often people that I like. And I like, I get it. Like, I go like, yeah, it is them, fun. Yeah. But I think like, you like know. when you see them, are you like 420? <laughs> <laughs> well. I think I generally just like use uh, this podcast and others to talk about how it's corny. And then okay. I'm sure they uh, I would fully... think like you're corny to me and they're right. But I do remember like being, you know, younger and having someone point out to me like and this gets hit later in the movie. But like I would talk about like 
almost every activity of like, well, you know, like that's awesome to do when you're high. Where I'd be like, <laughs> yeah. I'd be like, oh, but getting a haircut high <laughs> is good. And it'd be, and people would be like, right. and it was like one of the first times that like someone pointed out, they were like, but you say that about everything. <laughs> you're like, oh, and wait. I was like, oh. <laughs> not going to look at that. But yes, that's true. <laughs> Everything that I do in the world. And he says like, they have this quote from where, uh, from William Burroughs that he gives where they say, why did you shoot dope? And he says, so that I could wake up and, mm -hmm. and, and shave. Right. Um, and it's like, I think I had that same kind of revelation of like, why do you do this? And it's like, so that I can enjoy literally anything in my life. Yeah. Uh, and any activity has to be connected to that in some way. So uh, then he, you know, and he has that Burroughs quote and then they say, um, oh, the woman he's talking to says, so you need it to shave. It's a grooming thing. And he says, no, I hate shaving. But in Hollywood, you got to look your best. Oh, nice right. little mission statement. Can we talk about the movie for a second? Or Please. are you just going right? Like what we were talking about before is that I do really like the movie yeah. because the acting is so amazing. And I want to mm -hmm. talk about the movie in and of itself because it isn't that good. I, I didn't mm -hmm. think it was that good. And I don't, but I'm saying that as a preface because I don't want it to seem like I'm being obnoxious when I make fun of it as we talk about it, because there's like a lot of cliches and a lot of like cringy things mm -hmm. about it. It's a nineties period piece, yeah. which is important to to, it's not a period piece. It's just a '90s movie. It's made in the. I mean, it's really, I guess, taking place in the in the late '80s, largely, like when Alf was on or whatever. Um, right, right. But, but it's, it's, it's so it's 90s. made in '92, and it feels very '90s. Um, now it's a period piece because we're watching it. Right. Thirty-one years later. Um, There's some stuff in it though that I found painfully and terribly true yeah. about the industry yes and and also but a lot of it i was like trying not to hate watch it in my head okay so i'll talk about my i'll repeat what i said when we talked about the movie and you asked me if i liked it yeah. and i will say that in terms of the structure of the movie which isn't even necessarily what i we we talk about but the framing device of the film is that he is for a large part of the film in a hotel room with Maria Bello and he is telling her about his like journey with drugs and Hollywood and she's asking him these questions and the questions are very on the nose setups for exactly what he needs to talk about and the framing device and the conversation don't feel super authentic or even necessary to the to the movie and I think it's because it was based on a memoir that they mm -hmm. were like we need some way to have him telling the story because we want to use some language from the book which often happens with books where it's like how do we somehow structure that mm -hmm. we're hearing their thoughts yeah the story that he's telling and the scenes that take place where he is playing out his like addiction and his journey into Hollywood I really like I remember liking this movie in the 90s when I saw it and Same. thinking it was cool. Mm -hmm. And when I looked it up for the show and saw that it had like a 56% on Rotten Tomatoes, or whatever, I was sort of shocked that it was like, oh, I thought this was a cool movie that people liked. I didn't realize it was critically not well received. And then I was like, oh, am I going to watch it now and be like, uh-oh, this wasn't good. Right. But I didn't feel that way. I think his performance when he's high and stuff is beyond off the charts yeah. good. 
I think Maria Bello is great, even though I don't love that section of the film. I think right. like when she picks him up in the drive-through window and everything, it's an amazing performance. I think Owen Wilson is sort oh of God. some of the first he's exposure so, to him, and so he's funny. so funny in it. I think that um, the little parts, like the like Fred Willard as the showrunner of right. Alf, like so many people deliver great performances, and I really enjoyed watching it. And by the way, it's eighty eight fucking minutes. You know what? You're so, so like, right. I I do. Yeah. And I'll say make one more point, yeah. which is which I made before. I am nostalgic for a time when a movie like this yeah. could come out with all these great actors and great performances, doing kind of a cool small story. And would be negatively reviewed because there were so many indie movies with like cool, interesting perspectives. And I don't feel like that exists anymore. And I feel like if this movie came out tomorrow, it would actually be evaluated very differently and would be cool. I agree with you. And I think what happened to me is that the Maria Bello, Ben Stiller vehicle. Mm hmm. Really, it was very, very distracting for me. It pulls you out of it. You're it, like really in the story. And then every time they right. cut back to the hotel room, you're like, by the way, Benjamin Button has this problem for me. I <laughs> oh, do really? not care about like the hospital room right, where right. the story is being told during Katrina for whatever reason. I want to watch <laughs> fucking Benjamin Button age backward. Like, yeah, that's what I want to see. Totally. Every time they pull out, I go, I don't need this part. Especially because in Permanent Midnight, she is only asking him questions about himself, right? Yes. She, they're fucking. There's no exchange. There's and, no exchange. They're and, naked. It's love at first sight. Well, at the end, at, as they're leaving the hotel room, he goes, I think I fell in love with you tonight. And she's like, you know, that's a terrible thing to say to someone. It's like, you fell in love with her because she's so interested in you and right. you haven't asked her one single fucking question about herself. We know nothing about her. And by the way, I relate. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like that too. <laughs> he also says after, uh, I think, a half an hour, 45 minutes into the movie, after their, I guess, beginning of act two or, or whatever, mm -hmm. I don't even know your name, he says. It's so to her. Yeah. Like, I'm, it's so, it get, it, it Hollywooded out itself. There's stuff, yes, that, and that is the area where I do think some of the, cliches and more false ringing stuff live rather that than that the, wasn't in there what um, did stiller say about that so okay well we'll I get ahead wanna, of it a little bit i don't want to just take like you i'll say track. no we'll talk about this and then we'll start going sort of scene by scene again okay okay while i was watching the movie i received a text from ben stiller just randomly about something else um okay. that i had been talking to him about then i told him I was watching Permanent Midnight when you contacted me and he said, oh, wow, like um. I haven't watched that in forever. Like, And I was like, well, I hadn't seen it in a long time either. Um, and he was like, yeah, it was a really interesting movie like to make. And that um, the guy who adapted the book and directed the movie never directed another movie. He said like right. he was a first time director and he didn't end up directing again. He went back to mostly working as a writer and that part of it. And I hopefully Ben wouldn't mind me saying this, but like Jerry Stahl was also involved in the movie and he had lived the experience mm -hmm. and the director 
had not had any drug addiction, was not a sober person. And so he didn't have any direct experience with it. So when Ben had a question about mm -hmm. like how something should be, how it should play out, what it was like, how it should feel, he would go to Jerry right. and had like bonded with him a lot. And that that was like a little bit of a push and pull dynamic because you have this person who is ostensibly in charge of mm -hmm. the tone and look and feel of the movie. But then you have another person who is a greater authority mm -hmm. on the events of the film. Um, and that makes total sense to me. That's how I thought I was. Mm -hmm. that I thought I was the Jerry Stahl on love. Mm -hmm. And I was not directing ever. Mm -hmm. And people didn't like that. <laughs> yeah. And I don't blame them. But also, I knew more than them. Right. <laughs> and that's an interesting thing. And, in, and in a, in, for specific things, not. In yes. Well, by, and by the way, I um, did, you know, I have written an unproduced feature about some of my own uh, oh, addiction cool. experiences, but I had someone who read it and was going to try to help me produce it early on, say like, you have to direct this movie. Yeah. And I said, I'm not a director. And they were like, no, but I, and I, I mentioned this to sure Ben, they said, are. no, you're, it doesn't matter because you will be responsible for like 85% of the director's job because it is your actual life story. Mm -hmm. And people will need to come to you to talk about so many aspects of it that like you should learn some of the technical pieces and just like do it that way because otherwise it's going to create a bad somewhat. You can direct, Sean. <laughs> Leslie, like, I will. <laughs> just make Starting this now. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay, give me some money. Um, uh, so, <laughs> so anyway, the movie opens. He's working this menial job at like a fast food uh, establishment. He is feels like he's better than his job. You get right away. Can't believe who he's dealing with. I'm just curious because uh, of your personality and mine. Did you ever work any customer service jobs? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you did. You worked in a hotel. I worked in a hotel for years. I worked... Did you like it? Did you feel like you were good at it? Yeah. Were you sober at the time? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I did like it. I worked in reservations, so mm -hmm. I was... And I worked in room service and reservations, but I worked at night. Well, I also worked during the day, but mostly I opted to work at night. And so it was, I was in the basement and it was mostly phone. Like mm -hmm. I was on the phone making reservations and calling. So I didn't have to see people face to face, but I worked in retail forever. Mm -hmm. I did like it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I I didn't love it. Yeah. But as far as jobs go, the hotel was great. Like yeah. no one bothered me at night. I wrote yeah. a fucking book at work. Yeah, that's like, amazing. <laughs> yeah, because it, it was quiet at night. Yeah, I worked at a dry cleaner and I dealt and I fielded a lot of customer complaints and I, I was not always also great dry at cleaner. it. <laughs> I mean, it's hot in there. And it's a complaint-based business. No yeah. one ever comes back and goes like, there were no wrinkles in my shirt. Thank you. That's right. like the expectation is that everything will be pristine right so no one's ever impressed when it's done right but when something is done wrong they're very mad and so um that is something that i learned about that industry and it is like you're only really ever talking about things people are unhappy with totally right so like in retail not not so much like that or mm -hmm. like if somebody does come in to complain we mm -hmm. 
it's like let's fix this for you like let's make this work you know mm -hmm. but um not in dry cleaning that, I, that I, sounds hard i bring it up only because like it's the it's what he's doing in this but he feels like he has a line in the hotel after he gets picked up by Maria Bello at the drive-through, who's so good in that scene. Yeah. Um, and uh, he says basically like, this isn't, this isn't actually my calling. Like when he's working the job, he's like, but this isn't really my job. This is something I have to do, but I'm actually right. a writer. And right. did you always feel that way? And yeah. those kind of things. Yeah. Totally. Like, because I was also in my twenties mm -hmm. and maybe early, and early thirties. So it was like, no, like I'm, this isn't, I work at a hotel, but it's not my identity. Mm -hmm. My identity is a writer, which is also bullshit, by the way. And I don't think that's my identity now either. But mm -hmm. I held that. I held on to that, especially when I was, wanted to be important mm -hmm. in my late 20s, early 30s. Yeah. I'm a writer. That's who I am. I can't not be. It's yeah. just how I was made. It's like, shut up. Well, I think also as we talk about the, the framing device of this being maybe the least successful portion of the movie, part of it is he is in the scenes where he's like fucked up and like high and like trying to hide what he's doing and living this double life. It's like so dynamic. And in this, like in the hotel, he's like this hollowed out kind of egotistical, mm -hmm. just like I'm actually important right you know totally. and it's like and he's a little bit like gotta play like too cool for school right. and you know that he's like got he's fresh out of rehab it's like empty there's like less um it's a less dynamic thing okay and, question yeah now also this i did read the book but i read it so long ago i don't remember so when he goes to rehab he has already had success but he still needs to go to treatment, but then he works at a fast food place. Why? I believe it is like almost like a sort of work study program. Like it's uh, part of the process at the rehab is you have to work a job and there may be some series of jobs you can pick from and you need to get like 30 days of like work at this fast food restaurant or whatever. And I know there are places- uh, rehabs where like part of the program is like whether you, you know, help out with some kind of manual labor or something yeah. else like that as like part of your recovery for sure to like humble yourself and also to be able to like reenter society for a lot of people. Yeah, and like clean up your shit. Like, yeah. I mean, I had to do that, but not at to McDonald's. listen to someone else and be told. I had to yeah. Wake up, like, you know, to do wake up at 6 a.m. and then like toilets. I mean, mm hmm whatever you in a be. facility or something yeah betty oh, ford yeah. Oh, i mean okay. i went to a couple but the last one i went to is betty ford but um my other question is now maria bello drives in she goes into the drive-through backwards uh-huh and she's smoking a cigarette she has her sunglasses on at night kind of thing yeah. is she supposed to be drunk this is interesting and i did note this too as she picks him up no, she's not because they immediately are in the hotel room that same night and she says like, oh, you're one of these rehab people and she's like, good luck getting clean. Basically, he's like, I've got 90 days and she has more time than him. At that. She's oh, like, okay. she's also sober. Right, right, And right. is like further down the path than him. I see. Um, But she has said like, I, I work my ass off to get my shit clean. I don't want to be around you. And he's like, well, I'm clean too. And she's like, no, you're still a junkie because you don't have enough distance from it that right. I can trust that, you know, you'll actually stay with it. Um, right. Which is a funny like 
I guess, aspect of sobriety where like when you first get, every time you get two weeks or a month, you're like, I fucking did it. Yeah, totally. And I do remember something like when I finally got a year after many stints of a month, two months, three yeah. months, six months, and I got a year and I went to uh, this guy who was my boss who had hired me after meeting me in the in the program. And I was like, I got a year. And he went, do it again. <laughs> and I was like, this is the coolest thing you could ever, like, yeah. he just like, uh, uh, he was like, yeah, that's good. Do it again. Like, <laughs> nice. like, cause it good. was like, that's, that's always the point. Right? right. And like, she's kind of saying the same thing to him of like, I don't care what you've done. Like you need to actually keep doing it. Totally. Um, so then whatever she has, she gets a little bit of background on him. He says he's a writer. He says he wrote for, uh, he goes, did you ever hear of Mr. Chompers, which is the ALF <laughs> right. surrogate in the film? She goes, oh God, you write that crap? Which is like, I, again, you know like there's a, there's a running thing of him being attracted to to people who don't respect his <laughs> work. Right. Because he doesn't. His self-loathing yes. is tied up in both being an addict and feeling like a sellout because he writes for these big network, commercially successful things, which right. I think- Correct me if I'm wrong. You feel like you have a little bit of a punk rock artist aesthetic, at least, or you did. I mean, I that, still like, do. So writing for Brooklyn Nine-Nine, oh even, which is a well, you know, critically received show, I feel like could be something that feels like it goes against your nature. Never, never in a thousand years. Give me any superhero movie to write. Yeah. Sign me up. I don't believe in selling out mm -hmm. again a very 90s idea that if you make money you're not cool and mm -hmm. like i have i call bullshit on that since i ate a burrito a day yeah because that's all i could afford like yeah it sucks not having money i'm not any less punk mm -hmm. because and i say but you punk never meaning, but you've never had that feeling no oh really in high school okay when everybody yeah. started wearing nirvana shirts i was like posers meanwhile i didn't even really like listen to nirvana that much like i really like them but i was like they're kind of grunge uh, i'll say i primarily i do i did care more and i do care about how i am perceived yeah <laughs> and what people think of me and so i and also we all have an idea of ourselves mm -hmm. and when other people's perception of you mm -hmm. doesn't match your idea of yourself, it can be frustrating or disconcerting. And so when this guy who wears all black leather, leather and slick hair <laughs> and shoots leather. heroin gets introduced as this guy writes for Alf, I think that understandably uh has some like cognitive dissonance thing happen where it's like i have to demonstrate that that's not who i am and i think that i have suffered from that in the past and obviously i also would rather have money than not yeah. um and i uh take work and want jobs whenever uh i can get them i would love to have a job that other people think is really cool totally i would prefer that and you, of course, wrote for Girls and right. Brooklyn Nine-Nine and shows that people are like, that's a good show. And so Thank you. you can sit here and be like, 
a whatever. But I right. feel like if you were writing for, and I don't need to bury anything You're particular, right. but like Last Man Standing, right? And it was like you were introduced as that. You might have a little bit of like I feel a slight need to show that like that's not actually my voice and my taste. That is a job I took for uh, financial comfort. Correct. Here's what I will say to that. Mm -hmm. And you're right. And I, girls was my first job and that's, that was a huge, it was the only job that I could, that could have been my Mm -hmm. first job. However, I wish I was the type of writer who was able to write anything. Mm -hmm. And I think that to be able to write on a show like Girls or Love mm-hmm. and also write a Marvel movie or Last Man Standing, you just are an incredibly talented writer. And I am I don't write those things because I think I'm too cool. I do not get those jobs because I'm not talented in that way. And I I w- I'm so enviable. Like Dave well, King, yeah, right? Yeah. Dave King will always work. He's mm-hmm. like He's a great writer mm-hmm. and he really just knows how to do the job well. Yeah. I am not that person because I could be that person. Maybe, maybe my writing's different, but a lot of it has to do with ego. But what, but what you're saying when you go like, I don't take those jobs because I don't get offered those jobs, but everyone, and this is part of what happens to Jerry Stahl in the film, whatever job you get, the town goes, that's who you are. Right. So he gets a job writing for Alf and then he gets offered another sitcom, like another network sitcom. That's not the kind of thing that he wants to do. And I feel like for me personally, it's like I um, got a job that was like an animated show. And then it was like mostly anything I got offered was animation. Then I got Workaholics, which was cool and was the thing I worked on that people like had respect for. But also it was these guys, you know, the fucking billboard was like them putting a keg on the water cooler. Mm -hmm. And I was here as someone sober and I would get these incoming calls of like, the weekend wants to do an animated show uh, called Best Buds about like Smurfs that are made of weed buds and everything. And that was everything was like, you work on the fucking dudes getting high show. Right. And now like you can only write for stoner stuff. And so it was like, even the thing I wrote that I liked that I thought was good was not presenting me opportunities for stuff that I wanted to do in a similar vein because it's so narrow how you get perceived. So I don't think necessarily that you couldn't write for a Marvel movie, but it's like, no, you won't get that opportunity and neither will I unless you somehow create it for yourself because like no one is going to stretch and take a leap to like see you outside of what you already do yeah i guess that is how people perceive me but i if it means anything to you i never thought of you that way and also people in this town but you can't give me a job how do you know <laughs> actually don't burn a bridge <laughs> i'll own you i'm on strike <laughs> i know just kidding we're striking but yeah. like Whatever people think about me in this town, mm-hmm. and let me tell you, I believe they think the worst. And I'm still here. I'm still here. It's like what yeah. the, I don't know what I. Well, you like, said to me when I asked you to do this. Yeah. And I'll and I'm gonna skip through some movie stuff after this yeah. point. But you, I was like, I want to talk <laughs> a little bit about like addiction and this mm-hmm. stuff. And you said like, well, I have a 
terrible reputation. Yes. <laughs> and I had a barely salvageable career. Yes. <laughs> because of my addictive behaviors. Yes. Which I thought was very honest, which is also part of sobriety, right? Trying yeah. to be honest about these flaws and evaluate them. Um, but uh, I thought it was also funny and interesting. <laughs> yes. And I think, and by the way, when you say, I don't know if it's true that your career is barely salvageable, but what I think will make you able to salvage it is you being so open and acknowledging right. like people think of me this way. Because if you're like, no, everybody loves me, then like you're fucked. Because oh my God. you because then you can't actually demonstrate that you've learned anything or know anything about the mistakes you made. Hondo P. So, I it's yeah. it's I, I stand by that. I so you're you said though, I do care how people perceive me. Mm -hmm. I have so had to let go of that kind of care mm -hmm. because I have been <laughs> humbled to the point where I am like so of the earth mm -hmm. that it's like I have such a high threshold for embarrassment and humiliation that it's like, I have no idea. I will never know how mm -hmm. people perceive me. I'm pretty sure. Well, it's none of your business. It certainly is not any of my business, but what is my business? But I think about it all the time. Is, mm -hmm. is yeah. having done harm to people yeah. that I, it took me a very, I mean, look, the fact that I'm even talking about this openly mm -hmm. is without any feel like I feel very neutral about it all of it but I Sean well okay look I'm gonna really skim through the movie because now we're because yeah, now, now we're in this conversation uh -huh. but let's talk about it then in terms of like what the behavior is in the room because I know for me and we get into this in scenes later on if you want to save it for then like of some of the way he acts in the room but I'm I, just letting God navigate this. I can take responsibility for as you as you say, like um, harm that you've caused in the room, mm -hmm. and I know that I have made formal amends for being in a room, and especially early on when when I was mm -hmm. in you know living in L.A. and and had not worked for a year and a half, and and you know had moved out for a job that disappeared immediately, and mm -hmm. had an apartment I couldn't afford, and ate uh peanut butter sandwich, peanut butter on wheat for two meals a day every day. Totally. And was like, that was my life. And then got a job. And I talked about like crying when I got my first job at yeah. Alan Gregory, like, cause I was like, I don't have to teach improv to like barely make my rent. Right. And being so desperate and so fearful that this job I had had to lead to another job yeah. and feeling in the room like I'm doing well and feeling in the room like other people are not mm. and loving that right. feeling and not being helpful and yeah. being harmful. Yes. And having a little bit more security and, you know, self-worth and things like that. Now I don't feel that I behave that way in a room anymore, but I did. And I have had to look at that. And I know that, uh, there was some, you know, it was probably unpleasant to work with me at times and that it was uh, something that has had an impact on like the way that I am perceived and that, you know, it's like this guy's kind of an asshole. But you were a staff writer. That was your first job. Yeah. Give yourself like go a little bit easy because 
that very when very green writers it you know you're being thrown into this it was from desperation and it was from an earned place of desperation but it's also like i was doing well i was connecting with the with the showrunner i was like i could have been more gracious mm -hmm. and um as you know we talk about in recovery a very like ego driven yeah. behavior i was so into like feeding my ego and getting more positive feedback getting laughs and talking over people and shutting down ideas that i didn't think were good right. in a way that uh was unkind mm -hmm. and was not necessary so like yes i can have some like whatever sympathy for mm -hmm. like why but the fact is didn't have to do it mm -hmm. could have been nicer mm -hmm. could always be nicer and it's still i'm still in a cycle to this day that comes up there's a scene where he comes in and he's all high and they know he's high but they need his help with the script right and they're going like what would you do and he's kind of being like hey you got to do this and you got to do this and he's kind of firing and i feel like often in a room i will like get in and like immediately try to make myself indispensable and work so hard and yeah. be like so accommodating and like really like demonstrate value as much as I can. And then as he does, instantly become resentful of the level of responsibility that is put on me and the lack of appreciation for how much I am providing right. in the situation that I created and then become kind of like snarky and make like little like cutting, like, right. you know, lightly insulting comments and be like, well, I can get away with this. And it and it is a cycle and a pattern that I am trying to break, but can still fall victim to sometimes, even though I'm aware of it. And that's part of recovery. And that's part of the addiction process of like, oh, I have this pattern I do again and again. All of my times that I feel unappreciated or resentful or angry are a result of my own behavior. Mm -hmm. And it's the same behavior over and over again. And just knowing that isn't enough, I have to actually work on it. Mm -hmm. So and do you want to talk about your version of that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, like, and by the way, I have found that something I thought at a certain point would just be, this is how I am. And I'm going to have to con constantly work on my skills over and over again, especially while I was working on these jobs. Like I used to drive to love with my white knuckling the steering wheel, listening to self-help podcasts, mm -hmm. praying, please be nice. Please be nice today. Mm -hmm. Everybody will like you if you're nice. Just be nice. I I don't know. I was like, what what is wrong with me? Yeah. That was my mantra. What is wrong with me? What's wrong with me is that I'm an alcoholic driven by self-centered fear. Yeah. And I had no alcohol at the time or drugs, nor did I have a 12-step program. Yeah. Those are my two solutions for me as somebody with alcoholism. Having neither of those things, I, it would have maybe benefited me to have been drinking or doing drugs during that time as opposed to nothing. I have thought about if when I, as much as I'm like so grateful for my life and my right. sobriety, my recovery of like, if when I entered like the comedy scene yeah. in New York, if I had been actively using, if I would have had a lot more fruitful friendships and social, you know, uh, relationships because 
I was sober, so I mm -hmm. was not having some of the bonding experiences, right. especially that happened in New York where no one has to drive. Right, um, right. I wasn't a, a part of that scene. Now, mm -hmm. no, I would never trade of course, for it, but I understand what you're saying. Yes, because like, the thing is I was is, more is that, fun at, right. so, at points. Now, yeah. the thing is, is that that isn't an option for me because mm -hmm. I can't choose when to stop. And unfortunately, unfortunately, like I... I will die. It's death for me. Yeah. It could be a physical death. It could also be a financial, emotional. There's many kinds of death, but it mm -hmm. was death for me yeah. as I found out not drinking anyway. So I was like, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? Because I had nothing driven by self-centered fear. My thing was that, and this is specifically, I'm talking about love, but it does apply to the other shows I've worked on. But it's because for me, it always comes down to control. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I do really like about a movie like this is that it's a drug addict writing about a, a drug addict and a screenwriter. And the two are very similar. There's a reason the entertainment industry is populated largely like there, yeah. are, uh, there is a an outsized representation of people who have issues with addiction. And it's because the highs and lows of the career are dizzying and devastating in right. equal measure. And, and it feels a lot like dealing with drugs, like, like right. getting the, fucked up. Because both, the out, both the addict and the writer are the pieces of shit in the center of the universe, right? Yes. We yes. hate ourselves, but we also know more than everybody else. Mm -hmm. So basically like... He moves from he he we, as we mentioned he moves from uh, uh, New York to L.A. in order to escape drugs. It doesn't work. This is a very classic, actually, addict behavior of called pulling a geographic, where mm -hmm. you try you go somewhere new, thinking that will solve your problem. But of course, wherever you go, there you are. There is a Hollywood version of this. I feel like where I know people who fire their agent or manager like every few months, where it's like it's like this is the problem, and it's like no, you are the I problem. Know. You I did are that the problem. Too. Of course, of did, course. Have you done that? Uh, I switched agents internally once, but I I'm aware of right, it. Right, like, right, right. I've I have done switches, but I always like measure twice, cut once because totally. I'm like so aware that it's very it's a very uh, common internal thing to just be like I know what's wrong. Everyone else, yeah, um, yeah. And sometimes it's like I should be doing approaching my work differently. <laughs> um, so then, so then so uh, we meet Owen Wilson in L.A. Great scene of them just kind of popping pills and cruising around with like knuckleheads. That is like, as we mentioned, and as we said, like, I have no choice of when I stop. I'm so lucky and fortunate that I stopped when I did. And I hope I never use again. But this is a scene that shows the point when it is fun for him. Yeah. And of course, that is how you initially become an addict is at first right. it is fun. Right. We didn't do it because we hated it. No, I did it because I liked it. But then I right. did start to hate it well, and it I couldn't stop working. doing it. Right. It right. stopped doing what I needed That's it to the do. That's bummer of it. Uh, and it started doing things I didn't need it to do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, we have a great just moment I want to point out of Ben Stiller gets asked about possibly writing for a TV show. And he says, I don't own a TV. This is, of course, canon and Hollywood handbook that I don't own a TV because <laughs> oh I do God. think this was the best, like, cool, like, I'm awesome thing that people right. did for a long time. Um, <laughs> he keeps getting the name of the show wrong. Uh, yeah. um, I think I think a particularly good, and I know, I think you did this well in love. And I think it's something I did in my script that no one will ever see. Wait, um, can uh, I read it uh, one day? Uh, yeah, sure. Thank you. But, 
there's a recovery quality to it, which is, uh, you know, he didn't write the script, but Jerry Stahl in his memoir does make himself the asshole. Like the, I don't own a TV, the getting the name of the right. show wrong, that care, he does not go like, I was cool and everyone else didn't get it. He right. goes, I was being a fucking asshole. Totally. Which I think is a great real perspective, hopefully that you get when you're sober is yeah. you see with vision now, all the times that you felt like a victim, you were you were the problem. I... Um, he gets into a green card marriage. Uh, he's paid $3,000 for it. Wait, he gets into a green card marriage with... Elizabeth Hurley. Elizabeth Hurley, who is so beautiful. Do you find her attractive? She's gorgeous. She And it's like... I'm a married man. And lovely. she likes him. <laughs> yeah, I can't tell. I don't know what she looks like. I'm married. If you go he, into that sort of thing, yeah. But, but she, it's like, come on. He doesn't even like her. No, he doesn't. But he's he also doesn't, <laughs> won't let himself. You know what I mean? Like, he's in this space where... He won't admit or uh, engage with like wanting anything in particular right. because being rejected for it right. would be so devastating that he's got to be totally outside of it. And this again, uh, he's using drugs at this time. He doesn't like her. She ends up liking him because he won't like her. Okay. Because he gives her nothing. You did such a good reading of this movie. <laughs> and, and he... <laughs> I'm such a surface all, it's watcher. It's just people, baby. Um, <laughs> and, and, but he... She wants him because he won't want her. Because he just can't even engage with like desiring something because that would be vulnerable and that would be exposed. And the drugs are a shield. The drugs let him go... All I want is the drugs. And later she gets so into him that she wants to have sex right. and he won't do it. He goes and gets high and then leaves. Mm -hmm. And I think it's like, again, such self-protection. And I, I personally, from my addict days, really relate to the mm -hmm. idea of choosing getting high over getting a girl yeah. or having a relationship yeah. or getting laid as the kids sometimes say that I was <laughs> I was so much more invested in it was so in my control yeah what my experience would be with drugs and alcohol how I would feel and no one else was a participant in it mm -hmm. in a way that like was very safe and that engaging with other people was not totally um and so it right, was very intimacy. it's very it's you think it's like cool and and dangerous and badass to do drugs. In my experience, it was a very cowardly thing. Yes, because it was like this is where I'm safe. This is what I understand, and anything else, just going on a date sober and having a conversation with someone is much more terrifying than taking a you know. Uh, uh, I'll mention the scene ahead of time where they, you know, when he smokes crack and they are jumping into yeah. the window. This is the thing I remember the most from totally. the movie it's seeing such it a is trailer moment. They're in a high rise building. The window is looking out. They're like, whatever, you know, 40 stories up. And he's getting high with this guy and they're running and jumping into a plate glass window. It looks like they're going to go flying out the window and they hit the window. It doesn't break and they come back. And there's this feeling of invincibility. Mm hmm. And I know that I would get given like a, you know, they go, here's a fucking whatever, Soma or whatever. It's time release. Like, cause there was just pills around. Right. And it's like, this is time release those. and it's a muscle relaxer. Yeah. Bear in mind, 
your heart is a muscle. So if you relax right. it too much, your heart will stop is what I would be told. So do not, because a time release pill, you put it in your stomach and yeah. then over six hours it has its effect. But anything that's time release, if you want to have the effect immediately, you cut it up and you snort it or shoot it or whatever. Right, right. And, and it would be like, don't cut this up and snort it. And I would immediately cut totally. it up and snort it because I felt invincible. Right. And so that is something that would be scary to most people. No, what was scary to me was like. Yeah, going on a date. Having, yeah, or having a real relationship. Yeah. A hundred percent. I think that's also scary to most people. They just don't have they're, they're they don't not, have an additional outlet that they go like it's actually this is my thing right instead. and yeah. or an allergic reaction to it once they do like let's say yeah. oh i'll take a clonopin instead of while before i go on this date and that'll help me mm -hmm. cut to i'm just taking clonopin and yeah. i'm alone all the I'm time i'm skipping the date <laughs> right. and i'm taking 10 clonopins <laughs> exactly yes. yeah yeah that's that's exactly right yeah it starts as something to make something better and this is my experience with adderall where it was like uh, which is something I really loved. It was like, oh, this will help me write this paper. And mm -hmm. then it's like, well, I'm actually enjoying having a conversation on this. Right. It's like, well, I'm actually enjoying downloading songs off LimeWire by myself with this. <laughs> <And then laughs> right. It's like, okay, now I'm just in a hole doing this by myself. Totally. Um, so anyway, uh, he he does the green card marriage. Then as we said again, he because he won't care about anything, he aces the meeting for ALF. Because he doesn't give a shit right. about well, it. He, he looks goes, down on it. He goes into the meeting and it is such a funny scene because of uh, Fred Willard. But yeah. He was so great. And like he goes in and he's like, what would you what would you do for like our little friend? And wh what yeah. journey would you take him on? And, and he goes, fuck the journey. And then he quotes Steinbeck. Yeah. Goes, and it's I like, see him as a modern day Tom Joe. Yeah. <laughs> And then, and then fucking Willard is like, I read uh, what's his name, yeah, and he's like boy. Steinbeck, and he's like Steinbeck, right. yes. And then he just loves him. But it is we've talked about this before. By actually not wanting something, you can get it. Uh, uh, sometimes you. It's more. It's it's yes. easier in this town to go into a meeting for a show that you don't respect or don't like and get the job than it is for a job that you really, really want mm -hmm. where that desperation, just as in courtship, is yeah, palpable. You're right. I agree in the sense that if you go in with an attitude of neutrality as opposed to an attitude of desperation, you have a better chance. Mm -hmm. But the yes, that that I will that perfume smells, they're two very, very different smells and people can smell them. Mm -hmm. However, I would never go into a meeting and be like, fuck the journey. Here's what I think. Dark Knight of the Soul, Steinbeck. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's Alf. It's like, but, but. No, that's a very heightened version of it, it, but it's also 90s. Right. Well. It is the 90s. I do want to talk about the experience that he has getting jobs in L.A. and how easily they fall into his lap. Yeah. I do think I, it is more realistic than what I wish, like you could watch this movie and be like, this is heightened. Nobody does that in a job. Nobody gets jobs like that for like a straight white guy in the 90s. Mm -hmm. And I have a story for this when we get to it, if you want. But like, I think it was very easy to to do those jobs yeah. and, and get high. It, I think it did fall into his lap.
to talk about his writing experience, the showrunner, Fred Willard, then just hands him a script and goes, I've been working on this for two weeks. It's a piece of shit. You can make it work. You got the job. And he gets a rewrite assignment on someone's script. On and Alf. So, and on, on Alf, like on the pilot, like on the season two premiere or something of Alf, it's basically implied. So he impressively re you know is able to like totally reconfigure this and actually gets a phone call from his mom who is very troubled and we learn about his father's suicide and all these other things wait isn't there a scene that he has right before where so he's typing smoking shirt off uh-huh. sweating and he's writing the script and then there's like a flashback to like his like a sad childhood scene like dad well, no, he gets a call first Okay. He gets a call from his mom and then when he hangs up, he sits back down to write and then he's remembering the the stuff because his mom like his mom invoked a bender and then uh, that causes him as he starts like taking pills to like get over the fact that his mom called him and thought he was someone else. Uh, he starts remembering some of his childhood trauma, including attending his father's funeral after his father had committed suicide. Right, that's and then what it was. and then puts it into the and it so it like blends of it. Then you know whatever his mom being like Walter, Walter, oh no, blends into an episode of Mr. Chompers, yes. aka Alf, and the woman's going Walter, Walter, and you realize that he has written the sort of death funeral scene into the show, but it is a sitcom mom grieving her cat, right. <laughs> And like that is like and that everyone's gone like this is the best episode we've ever done. Um, <laughs> totally. Which is, Everybody. Which is pretty cool. All that. I, OK, so I I love and hate that both. I From a writing point of view, I think it's so funny and I love it. And uh-huh. I and I and I love that he put it into Alf and it is really well. They did it in a subtle way and I liked it. It's a cool, slightly self-deprecating thing right. where I've had this like even when I talked to David Goodman about like I. I wrote the episode of the show that he was like, this is going straight to table. Like, and it was really heralded as like, this is such a great episode that you've written, but it was for a show that everyone hated that like was, you know, so he's like, I'm, I'm so talented. I wrote a great episode of Alf. There's like a little tongue in cheekness to it where it's like, he feels okay bragging about it because he, he looks down on it. Totally. It works Uh from an, from an addict point of view. I hate it. Because uh-huh. it makes it seem like, well, this is why I hurt myself because I had because my parents, my family trauma. And I don't like that because mm-hmm. I don't I don't I think that I just don't think it's true. And I think it's cliche that people might think that that we are addicts and alcoholics because we had fucked up childhoods. And like, that's not true. That's not why I'm an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And so. It's a cliche that bothers me that I see a lot. And Anyone can be an addict. Yeah. You can come from any background or have any kind of, it's like the way you react to drugs and alcohol. It is no respecter of persons. Betty Ford that was an said, alcoholic. You know, there is like, it's not a bad thing to sort of evaluate some of your own personal history and know where some of your patterns or hangups come from. Oh, 100%. Um, it both just of his parents essentially why. commit suicide in this movie. So you get like, this guy is in a world of right. sort of trying to destroy himself. And I think when that happens, when you have a, fam- a certain family history, you sometimes think, I am doomed to repeat this on right. some level, no matter what, uh, is what is what I take away from it. And right. I think, you know, I, some of my own issues are issues that I have witnessed in other people that I. You know why, by. though? And I know you want to talk about more about <laughs> issues that you've noticed in people because what? 
Uh, the, that I was raised by. <laughs> oh, yes, the, of course. You know what? I just want to say this because it is really important to me that there are a lot of things about AA and, and alcoholism in general that are really misconstrued and that it's very dangerous because this is a disease that people die from. Yes. And so, and I don't think that what, what Jerry Stahl or Permanent Midnight did was dangerous at all. I'm not saying that. But there is this notion that I, I, there has to be a reason why I'm an alcoholic and, and, oh, it's because my parents did this to me or I got a DUI. I must be an alcoholic. Getting a DUI doesn't make you an alcoholic. Having shitty parents doesn't make you an alcoholic, right? There is, there is a commonality Mm -hmm. between addicts and alcoholics. There Mm -hmm. is a, a, a similar you know, level of experience that a lot of people have, but it is not personal life history experience. Right. It is an internal experience where for me, the way I would put it is, or the way I've even heard it put before is like the very first time I had a drink or I had a chemical alteration of the way I felt Mm -hmm. without being able to identify it, it felt like I was finally having the answer to a question that I didn't realize was being asked. <laughs> like, <laughs> like it was just like, oh. And I sort of felt like, this is how other people feel. Mm-hmm. I am at last at ease within my own skin. Right. I have been experiencing anxiety I was unaware of and having the anxiety relieved lets me know, oh, that was anxiety. And now I have the cure for it. Yes. And I think that that is something that can happen to someone no matter what, absolutely. No matter what your uh, um, parents did, or your financial experience yeah. was, or that any, can or even happen mental to health who or isn't anything. an alcoholic or an addict. Oh, it, it surely can. It just depends on like how you react well, to that feeling after. It depends on whether physically can you say, without a doubt. I know exactly what will happen to me every time I put a drink or a drug in my body. I know that I can stop. I'm going to go out tonight. I'm just going to have a glass of wine. I have a new job starting tomorrow. That's it. Can you say without a doubt I, in your mind that you can handle that, that you could do that? I can't. No, I, do I can't not without a doubt in my mind, although it's, I would even, uh, I would also, to you don't want to get, we don't want to get fine tuned on this because you could even quibble with certainly someone could then go well i think i might be an alcoholic but i'll go out tonight and have a few drinks and if i can stop then that means i'm not and it's like no it's sometimes you can sometimes i right could stop totally but sometimes i could not if there's (laughs) if there's one out of ten times just i could stop on my own nine out of ten times i'm an alcoholic just one time I that can you have that you completely lose control. Yeah. If I that and I can say I can't say that I can drink without impunity for certain. But I didn't you know what I mean? Like but but that the physical aspect, I think, is really crucial is all I'm saying. But the mental aspect is the greater aspect of the disease. <laughs> I don't agree. Um, I think it's threefold. I think it's the. I think it's physical, spiritual. Well, if it was primarily the physical, then you could remove the physical presence of alcohol and drugs. Correct. And the person would be cured. Yeah. But the fact is, I drank and used 
because I love doing those things. Yeah. But when that was taken away from me, it had to be replaced with something. Yes. I could not just remove it because it had stopped working. As we've said, it had stopped doing what I needed it to do. Yeah. But when it was removed, that was not the solution. I needed an entirely new perspective and design for living right. in order to function right. uh, and in order to be in any way content in my life. Yeah. So I would say that you can detox physically from drugs and alcohol Absolutely. in a week or two and you are not cured. Right. Now, so, I think you can have an emotional. Basically, yes, I totally agree. There's a physical aspect. There's an emotional aspect. Lack of power is our dilemma. So without that power that we get from or we think we get from drugs and alcohol, now we need it to get it from someplace else. However, I didn't think for a long time that I had a physical allergy, a physical reaction to certain things. I thought it was all in my head, right? Even this is years and years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and I did have to go out and try more controlled drinking to make sure because I was like, I don't think I'm an alcoholic. I just, I'm a drug addict. So I'm just going to go out and do more research with, I don't think the picture of an alcoholic is complete without all three physical, no, that's emotional. True. It, it is. Yeah. Yes. You, you do need all three, but I would say the physical part is the easiest part to solve in a way because mm -hmm. you can be in a rehab and not do any drugs or alcohol. To but when you right. get out, you will do it again. And not because you have a physical craving, not because right. you are in withdrawal, you have a mental but because obsession. you have a mental obsession. Absolutely. And that is the thing that, that is comes the from most so insidious, yeah. that is the most difficult to address. Because it comes from a experience. place of sobriety. That's why. Because every time I decided, thought I was making the choice mm -hmm. to do something was from a place of not being fucked up. Yes. So I'm going to put my hand on the hot stove, mm -hmm. but I won't get burned this time because I know what I'm doing yes. every time. I'm going to put my hand on the hot stove. It's going to get burned and I don't give a fuck. Right. Yeah. It's like, but that I was sober every time. Yes. And I thought I had control over certain things. And, and I did the same thing you did where I was like, well, I really got a problem. You know, my thing uh, to talk about too. this show, this movie is about heroin addiction. I've done it. I never was in the world of needles. Mm -hmm. uh, I loved uppers. I wanted to talk, 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 talk. I had so right. many great ideas. I wanted everyone to listen to my ideas. I wanted to be able to say them even faster. I wanted to have more of them. And so that was <laughs> what I loved, but I would do anything right. that would make me feel differently than how I felt when I was just at rest. So I would, right. I would take painkillers, muscle relaxers, heroin, anything. any, like I was, as they call you in recovery, a, a, a trash can. Um, but, uh, Did you not but drink? I had a preference. I drank as a fundamental baseline of every totally. single experience I ever had. Drinking to me was not even considered a right. drug. It was like, <laughs> first I will have, <laughs> right. you know, uh, whatever, a, an entire bottle of wine or something by myself. Right, then right, I right, will right, start right. <laughs> actually enjoying myself but drinking was like i i was drunk just to like start the conversation and then it was like what are we actually doing totally um but yeah so so i didn't think of drinking as as bad and then when all that was removed it was like well but like i never got in trouble smoking pot pot's so innocent right. and it's like the fact for me is if anything is allowed you know you can do this 
you can do this logic then you're like i'm a fucking 42 year old man right. i got a job i got a i got a house i got a family i can have a beer well, that's true right that's true i can but i can't exactly like and right. so you it's can like, i like, can't exactly I can, I can smoke pot but it's like once i say i could do this yeah then why what's to stop me from saying well i also could have two well, I right. also could have three. I wouldn't be drunk if I had three. And actually, I really like Adderall the most. Had so... three, yes, well, that's what I want. Right. Or like, I want to fucking... So, and so there's like that that piece of it of just like uh, the logic makes sense for me of like, there are things that were less harmful or whatever, but like none of that matters. And mm -hmm. part of that too is, as you talked about, the physical reaction. And I'll say one more thing still not being a spokesperson for anything is as you talk about a physical reaction and sometimes it's described as like an allergy in recovery and people will say well it's not really a disease right, right. and i hear this still it's not really a disease and what i'll say is i don't care totally <laughs> i don't need it to be what has right. been proven <laughs> is the disease model of treatment right 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 you know is what? effective uh -huh. <laughs> it, it, you're so right i mean look disease isn't like the most hopeful word is which is why mm -hmm. like for me when i say i'm i have a disease it sounds like i have like there's no cure for this bad thing i'll always have but it's it that's the structure of it yes well it was originally classified as a moral failing right and it was your it's own internal that. lack of willpower and when they said it's a disease your body reacts differently than other people you have a different like chemistry and mm -hmm. makeup it allowed people to seek treatment who otherwise saw that as weakness right and that then created an effective program of treatment for it so it's right. like i don't care if it's a disease totally. like it's not a disease it's like sure or um, it is right. Or but it's but this is a great way to approach what, it. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so, so I didn't mean to go off on that tangent, but clearly it's like I'm doing more AA than I am writing. Mm -hmm. So it is like close to me. But I will say in this movie, like, and I know we said this before, but Ben Stiller, who I think is somebody who isn't a drug addict or alcoholic and not in sobriety, like he was so good and the addiction part of this movie felt very, very real. Yeah. So we get into now there's like uh, quickly a very classic cliched scene that is this is a cliche, but they do it in a way that's subtle where he mentions earlier. They say, well, what were you doing? He goes, I was making five thousand dollars a week. And they're like, so were you like living it up in the hills? And he goes, no, I was sleeping on Owen Wilson's couch mm -hmm. and eating his painkillers and eating his pills. And then there's a scene where and this is a famous thing that gets said in addiction of like, yeah. I was the type of addict who would steal your drugs and then help you look for him. Diagram now, they of don't, a scam. They don't say that. Yes, but he is. He's helping Owen look for his drugs. And he's going like, well, come on. We'll go check. Like, check the bathroom, man. He's like, yes, you're right. The bathroom. He's like, where the fuck did they go? And they're like accusing other people. And you know, and also Ben Siller is wearing his sunglasses in the scene <laughs> because he's high on the pills. Totally. He's wearing and all so, black. It's LA, right? Yeah. All black sunglasses, black leather jacket. Yeah. It's so... It, He's like, it's oh, perfect. where is it? I can't believe it. It's it's and, really, really And good. I was really this person. Yeah. You know, I was like, somebody would be nice enough to like give me something from their stash and I would like a hawk, watch exactly where they put it. I'm okay, it's in of the course. sock inside the duffel bag that they keep <laughs> under the couch. And I would fucking go back and take the shit and then be like, what? You got yeah. her dog? Like, I would totally do that. And it's just like another example of like, 
morally it just becomes the desire to fucking get high is so imperative that it's just like nothing else matters so i totally i thought this was a funny scene i thought it was well done um they can i he, ask you a yeah. really quick question this is the dumbest question ever but do you think that owen wilson like improvised with ben stiller in this movie i do and there's actually a scene that i almost uh was gonna pick as my like wish i wrote it scene i know which one but it is, I, and i thought i think this but i think it's largely improvised that's and what so I, yeah. I didn't i didn't even pick it but um yes here's he says diagram of a scam the one really funny thing I want to mention from this scene is when he decides that they're like accusing, they're accusing this 12 year old now of stealing their pills who like, I guess comes by the apartment sometimes. And then he's like, Oh, it was Benny. He's high right now. He took my shit. And then, uh, Ben Stiller goes like, Oh man, that piece of shit. And then he goes, well, slow down a little bit. Yeah. Cause he's a good friend. <laughs> it's so perfect. Owen Wilson. Um, Again, his self-hatred makes him have sex with a woman in a bar who doesn't like his TV show. She is possibly a Nazi. Uh, oh my God, um, I forgot about that part. By the way, the song in this scene, Too Wiki by Hoover Phonic, go listen to it. It Dude. is the most 1992 song in history and I loved it. It Me was such too. a throwback. I was like, wait, I know this song. It, uh, Sean, yeah, I had to I look swear. it up right away. I thought the same exact oh, thing. Oh. Yes. <laughs> All the music in this movie. I was like, me. yeah, it's I think so I loved fucking good. This song. <laughs> it's, it's great. Then um, we see him like being in the flow of things. He feels invincible. He's good. The showrunner's leaning on him. Uh, you know, we've talked a little bit about this. Um, then uh, he's doing drugs. He's hanging out with a random family in their house. There's a little bit of an example of like the relationships you form when oh you God. are in the addict world, but just like Loved. just being inside people's lives who you have nothing in common with other than oh, yeah. Willie, we both do this. Willie, Camilio. I mean, I had friends, man. Like I thought that was so perfect. Oh yeah. There was a Meriden apartment complex that I would go to where it was just like, some guy who was so into break dancing and like me and him and he would just show me the stuff he was working at. I'd be like, yeah, fuck yeah. yeah. Then we'd go and pick up drug. Then it's like somehow it would get stolen. And I was like, well, he told one of his break dancing friends. Where it was. Like it was just like, it was, it, that was really well represented. I love that. Um, then from that, he gets really high. He's late to his agent meeting with Jeanine Garofalo, um, has this sort She's of so awesome. overly casual, like too forward, like lying and trying not to seem high, but he's so sweaty. And because he's hot shit, everyone's accommodating him. Everyone's making excuses for him. This is the point, you know, in his career and in his addiction where it's like, they kind of want to. They kind of know what's going on, but they don't want to know what's right, going right, on right. because it's not beneficial, and it's a little bit of a commentary on the town. I think. Yeah. Um, I will say, obviously, I wasn't a, a hotshot writer, but in the interest of like warts and all, telling stories from this stuff, so I had a bunch of different jobs before I got into um, entertainment, and uh, at one point, I was training to and became a massage therapist, and. I did an internship during that to complete my hours. And while I was in school for it, as fucked up as it is, because I was in sort of a caretaking position, I was very actively using drugs and doing alcohol. Mm -hmm. And it got very dark for me. And I was in, uh, I had an internship at a long-term care facility, which is people are going to die mm -hmm. in this building. And I was going there not to do 
sports massage or spa massage. I was doing massage, but it was largely to touch them because no one had touched these people. Mm. And so it was a very powerful, you know, uh, intense place to be. And there were all these nurses who worked there. This was their lives. And I remember showing up and I was, it was so obvious that I had been like, you know, on some kind of bender mm -hmm. and had gotten into sort of like a self-harm head state and had like, had a nurse come up to me and just go like, wear long sleeves when you come to work mm. with the patients. Basically being like, I see that there is a cut on your arm and like you now uh, are have put yourself in a position where like, I need to say something to you, but also we don't want to deal with this. Right. Like, it's You're just like- You're doing like a menschy thing. Like, these are my fucking patients too. Right. And like, I don't want them to deal with your shit. You deal with your shit. But like, fucking- basically like let's be professional and essentially what is happening in these scenes with uh jerry stall is janine garofalo and elizabeth hurley are going like please put on long sleeves right like we don't want to be yeah. so aware of what's going on for you so anyway so then he gets a deal he gets a massive windfall and blows it all on dope like he gets the agent she gets him a deal and he spends it all the joke or not joke in the movie is like he had a $5,000 a week job and a $6,000 a week habit. Right. Have you, as an addict, had any um, deals, paydays that even though you're not blowing it on drugs that you immediately had? I know it's, I believe it's common for people in recovery to have some spending and financial issues. Oh my God. Because there's a very similar, again, high and low that you can receive in this way. Yeah, I... I mean, I still I have it actively. Yeah, I cannot stop buying things. Mm -hmm. For me, when I moved to New York, I was I was working as a massage therapist, mm -hmm. um, having cleaned up. I was living in a an apartment in New Jersey, uh, and because I couldn't afford to actually live in where, New York, where property. in Jersey were you living? This was uh, an apartment in North Arlington, which mm -hmm. is near Lindhurst. Um, okay, the whole town of North Arlington is one square mile, but wow, it was like near Giant Stadium, basically. Okay. And I would drive in, and I booked a commercial, and I didn't have an agent. I had done like one Herald night at UCB, uh -huh. and I booked commercials. It was the wow. first thing I ever booked, and I finally got checks from the commercial. And in the mailbox, in one day, I got $7,000. And I had never in my life had more than $2,000 in a bank account. Right. And I was like, oh my God, I'm fucking rich. Oh my God, you and, were. And I went, I'm an actor now. <laughs> I As an actor, <laughs> as a professional actor who is making money. And it was Sorry. such a fucking addict thing where it's like, now this is who I am. Like, I'm just like putting on the skin of yep. like, this is my new persona. I need all new clothes. Of course. <laughs> oh, yeah. I blew through boots. this money. So like, that is well, the there's different auditions. Thing. And every time you go to an audition, they're going to ask you to dress a certain way. So it's like, it's for a bank. You got to wear a suit. Like, I went out and bought Tell clothes. me everything you bought. Well, I went to FCUK. <laughs> I am because I went into New York, dying right now, and I had now. no You're idea. The cutest man, Fre so and I went to bought, French Connection. I went to French Connection, and I bought this 
really expensive, like fucking like gray kind of fuzzy, like kind of cardigany sweater. Cute. And I washed it and dried it like a week later and it shrank like 15 sizes. Like I could like wear it on my hand. And so it was like the most money I'd ever spent on anything. And I destroyed it. Yes. Destroyed it instantly. And like, again, like to talk about addictions, like the self-loathing, like the massive high and the instant, like I shouldn't have spent any of this money and the money that I spent, like I fucked it up totally. so bad oh right God. away um but I, I just like i obviously again even in sobriety related to this thing um it's very so very then, endearing so then uh later she catches him shooting up in the bathroom at a party now he was hiding his life from her we've never seen the transition of her knowing what's going on it's right. just which i think is a cool thing the movie does it's just a given yeah. That like everybody knows. Now. Totally. Yeah. And they just treat, she's like, can you not do this? There's a party happening outside. Um, there's a little uh, bit of like party banter. This is the really funny Owen Wilson scene, right? Where he's pitching a young woman at the party on how good Ben Stiller's like uh, play is. And he goes, it's 50% avant pop. <laughs> You're funny. 50% Sam Shepard meets Arthur C. Clarke. Dude, I wrote down <laughs> the same line. And then he, so and he wrote, goes, and 10% naked girls. Yes. So then, tell me about your improv group. <laughs> so, so funny. Oh. I wrote down exactly what you wrote. And then I'm like, can I just write down, wish I had Owen Wilson to, to improvise in my shit? Yeah, 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 yeah. And then after Ben Stiller comes out of the bathroom, because he has a hallucination of seeing Mr. Chompers. Owen, he's comes out like ah, like and all the people at the party are quiet, and Owen Wilson starts laughing, and he's like, "I was just Jerry, Jerry, tell us about that what, sound. What was that sound was that we came sound? up with the other day? Yeah, we came up with the other day. Was, <laughs> what does that mean? I know. He's like, dude, dude, what was that? It was a great yeah. sound. And then and he like, and then Jerry all starts throwing up in the sink he because goes, he's like his and he goes he's, and Owen Wilson got goes, it wasn't that. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my God. So I, but we are getting to my wish I wrote it. Oh, that wasn't it. That was That's not mine. my wish I wrote it. I don't take it because it's it's improvised, but it is wish I had Owen Wilson is a good right. thing for that. The scene that I love is Jerry Stahl has gotten fired. He's fucking up. He's yeah. so high. He, he's making this mess. He comes home after like getting his ass kicked. He tried to buy drugs. He got he got beat by certain people. Um, he's like his habits too big for his re- regular dealer to support. I mean, I do remember having the experience too of like going to my drug dealer and being like, Hey, can I get whatever tonight? And he'd be like, tomorrow mm. we are all going out together. Like, cause it was like friends with these, it was like, we're all going to a concert together. We're all going to do this together. Mm. Don't do it tonight. Like, don't, and I'd be like, well, I'll do both. And it's like, right. but that's sad. Like, you're doing it by yourself yeah. tonight. Like, don't, like, they're big, like, do don't give me your money. Like, don't, we don't, like, what's wrong with you? And, yeah. And being like, here, and what she does to him too, which is she gives him drugs and she goes, like, here you go, don't come back. Right. Like, and having that experience of like, don't show up at my door at 2 a.m. anymore yeah. and like pounding, like, I have neighbors, don't come back here. <laughs> um, so anyway, he shows up home, needs something. Elizabeth Hurley has thrown out his stash. And this is my wish I wrote. I think this is maybe the best scene in the movie. 
she says to him, like, you need to get clean. He's going like, fuck off, whatever. Like, I need my drugs. Like, I'll get clean. I'll get clean. He's lying. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get clean. I have a plan, but I need to wean off because mm-hmm. I'm going to get sick. She says, I know the producers on this other TV show. I can get you a job on the show. He goes, I don't want to fucking work on that show. That's his honest response. Mm-hmm. Then as he starts to realize that he really needs to get her off his back about the heroin use and that he needs to stop talking about the drugs. He goes, you know, the more I think about that show, the more I realize that's a really good idea. (laughs) I think that's exactly what I should do. It's beautiful. It's beautifully played. And by her, how much she wants to believe him. It's such a perfect manipulative thing. And then what does she do? She goes and gets the drugs that she says she threw out and goes like, here you go. Yes. Like, we're going to take care of this together. But it's an incredible she portrayal. She gives him the drugs back. He tells, yes, he says, you're you're such a priority for me. Really good I know scene. what you're going through. Like, I know what I've put you through. I'm sorry for it. Yeah. She's like, I just want to see you back on your feet. He goes, no, that's why I realized, like, no yeah. such luck is exactly what I should do. And then I'm going to get clean. And she's like, okay, here you go. Here's your drugs. Which I even had this, you know, with enablers 100%. in my life where it was like, you shouldn't do this tonight. And then it was like, well, I'm going to do this and this. I have this plan. Right. And the way, and by the way, I think it actually does sometimes service, at least me as a writer, that there is a skill set that you uh, develop where you are always observing and clocking what people are responding positively to from you. Yeah. And you start to learn what they want from you. Yes. And you become, as a journalist, incredibly dishonest and manipulative in the service of that so that you can... Get them to do what you want. exactly. But when you're working on someone else's show, I think I do sometimes know this is what they like. I I have a vivid memory of them like not responding to this kind of thing and and a pattern of them doing this kind of thing. And you start to learn how to, in a positive way, Mm -hmm. like use that to like manipulate the showrunner into taking your pitch basically by framing it in ways that like, you know, they... Uh, appreciate and understand. And That's so- where I fail. <laughs> I am so self-centered that like, or have been so self-centered in the past, I couldn't get out of my own way to like manipulate and observe what my showrunner would want me to say if I didn't believe it was good. I I I'm beyond so that good. now. I have gone like, I've been in thing where I'm like, oh, this person, and it's sometimes something that I don't like, but I'll be like, this person loves like cutesy wording and I don't like it, but it's happening so much. And then we have to get out of this scene and we need to get into the next thing. And like, I really want, and like, not like I want my pitch in it, but I have a pitch right? that is worded in a very cutesy way and it will get us all home for dinner. <laughs> and that I, you know, and that's the sort of kind of, attic piece i feel like sometimes that's of going very good like, advice for me and also a very good skill to have when working with others because it isn't manipulative it is being of service it's it, it is because i've and i've said this before and i i maybe overuse it but when i talk to a, a showrunner now especially because of early on how i talked about like how much my ego was invested in things that i do say when i take a job on a staff i am not here to make my version of your show right i'm here to help you make your show and so it's like this is what this person likes yeah they will be happy with this. And it is, you know, and it is a joke in the scene that is of a piece with the show they've created. And I can help us 
get to the next scene. Yeah. And so um, uh, I think I can, it is manipulative. It is also somewhat humble. That's what the Because job it is. is like, you're going like, I'm putting aside my taste to say what I think will right. make the show work. And it, sometimes you can do both, which is great. That's mm -hmm. ideal. He then uh, goes to a meeting. This is an incredible performance when he's high in that meeting for the next show that the actress walks into. And he's like sunk into the chair. This show. And, and he is thinks he's acing the meeting, but he is blowing it. Beyond. And, and he's like, and- he, He's wearing and, the craziest outfit. Uh, the, uh, yes, even beyond like all the fucking black leather thing, he's now in this weird like, like super Vegas thing. He's in like a Dan Flash shirt. Yeah. <laughs> and he's, and he's, he has this thing that's real where he has a connection to, she walks in, she's like, I'm playing a judge, but you're writing me like any other like love starved woman. And he goes like, my father was actually a federal judge. And and it's like, this is kismet. Like when you can go, oh, I have direct life experience with what's happening in the show. That's a huge benefit in a meeting. And so you're like, oh, and she lights up like, oh, great. This guy's going to give me something. He goes, and the case that he kept the gavel in, <laughs> the little blue and white stitchy yeah, leather deal. And it. you're just like, oh, he's so off. He's and he so thinks he's crushing. Up. And then the dude's like, okay, well, I got to make some phone calls. And he goes, do your thing, man. I'm a fly on the wall. Is <laughs> that... like, he doesn't want to get out of the chair. I know. <laughs> he's so, so entitled. <laughs> Wait, so is that your I wish I wrote it? No, no. Oh, okay. I wish I wrote oh, it you... is the scene in the bathroom oh, that's right, where that's she right. catches you said him it. and he manipulates her into giving the drugs back. That scene is really funny, though. And he's like, do your thing. I'm a fly on the wall. It's like so entitled. But... One, what show do you think that was based on? Um, I think it's Moonlighting. And the actress oh, is Sybil right. Shepard. The actress who comes in okay. and then sniffs him out as an addict and then goes like, I'm clean myself. I know what you're going through. I want to give you a chance on the show. But if you fuck up, you won't exist in this town. God. Um, the and it's like a real this thing. Get, this guy gets. Well, yeah, but it is also a thing of like, don't you have, I know I have so much more grace for someone who's screwing up, who I'm right. aware is an addict. So versus just like an asshole. <laughs> like no, I go absolutely. like, I'm like so much more like when I hear about someone who like has some sort of behavioral issue and then it's like they either get clean or they were trying to get clean or, and I go like, well, this I don't know. There's a Harris. little more there, but for the grace. Yeah. Harris should have been fired. Sure. It, it may have saved his life, but it doesn't matter. We'll never know. And I would never, ever hold that anybody else accountable for that. But mm -hmm. I agree. I'd be like, oh, my God, she is one of us. Mm -hmm. She's def She definitely can't work here, even though I yeah. so want her to or him. Yeah. Uh, we have now these scenes uh, where... He goes to rehab because he blows the job after he gets this big opportunity. He um, is so clearly high in the in the different scenes. Uh, he's oh, he's gone on methadone to like begin the job, but then at rehab he meets someone who is a drug dealer, which is also like you know rehab can be. Uh, um, you've collected a lot yes. of people with a similar issue, and these are places where people can be predatory and um, also. It's like, um, you know, porn for addicts in some ways. People talk about all the drugs you didn't try yet or whatever. Like, Did you go to rehab? Like, huh? I went to uh, an inpatient uh, like hospital facility. It was like a 
mental health slash detox detox ward. Um, and I was like, yeah, for like know, locked into days? Hartford Hospital. It was uh, a few weeks, and I was, uh, and it was like this building where there's a room you're allowed to smoke cigarettes in. Right. And you could go in there every four hours for 10 <laughs> minutes. And it's like getting both your cigarettes in in the 10 minutes. And there was a huge blizzard while I was in there. It was at Hartford Hospital. Uh-huh. And no one could get their cigarettes in anymore. Oh my God. And like, it was, and it was chaos. Like, because like, you, <laughs> you know, people would come, you know, your whatever, your Dude, sister Hartford would come visit you Hospital. and bring you. And so I was in there for a couple of weeks. And again, just like happens in this, like it was my first exposure to really drying out. And physically I was no longer under the influence of anything after the first like three right. days where I like sweated it out and they gave me Librium and I, um, I read the Da Vinci Code in that hospital. One of the best <laughs> reading experiences totally. of my life. Fucking there, burned Was through. it co-ed? Um, it was, yeah. Did you get like an inpatient crush? No. Okay. Uh, I, no. Because that's a thing too. It's like drug dealers or like you fall in love. Um, <laughs> no, curious. it was a weird, yeah, uh, but. <laughs> you fell in love with the Da Vinci Code. I fell in love with the Da Vinci Code, <laughs> but I also, um, I was in there and uh, after I had kicked, I just started, I just was able to read immediately. Like the first couple of times they asked me, you know, they were like, why do you think you're in here? And I would say like, well, this bad thing happened to me and this other bad thing happened to me and this other bad thing happened to me and I've been very unlucky and everyone, I'm a victim. Mm -hmm. And they would go like, well, do you think that actually like the drugs and alcohol are the cause of a lot of your problems? And the very first time I was like, entirely the, i could just see on the guy's face and he's like starts writing and i was like okay every time i come in from now on i'm gonna go you know what i've realized the biggest source of right. my problems is drugs and alcohol and they're gonna give me fucking stellar marks and send me out into the world right and i was it was my first exposure to like meetings and everything and i went like well this will be a really great tool to use if i ever end up needing it <laughs> Totally. You know, and so um, it was valuable, mm -hmm. but I, and I got exposure to things that I ended up needing. But when I got out, I just like had learned like what I'm supposed to say, basically. Yeah, we're good at, at that, as you pointed out before. So anyway, yeah, that was my experience there. But he, he goes there. And by the way, they, there and in meetings, there was so much talk of, at the time that I initially went to get sober, I had not done heroin. And I ended up being like, at a certain point, I need to do it. Yeah. Like I need to check off this box because the way it was talked about and the love affair that people had with it in these rooms was so appealing to me as an addict yeah. that I was like, I can't fully get sober until I know I've like tried everything. And I like made it a mission to right. go back out and do that. And I actually know that that is a common experience Yes. Um, for people in there. And so, uh, Maybe it's worth mentioning. Were the reviews correct? How did you feel about heroin specifically? Genuinely, it's not for me. Mm -hmm. And I think the part of why I hadn't done it because I had had opportunities is that like, as I said, my preference was going up. I would like to go up. I don't want to like crash down. Um, yes. And which is what it is. It's almost, it makes you fucking fall asleep. You nod off. Yeah. You know, like it's very... 
It's a big downer. It's a downer. Yeah. And uh, that was not what I let. And I had had, you know, whatever, painkiller, oxys, some similar things. Right, right. And I knew a little bit, this is not my favorite feeling. Totally. So it was a very bad, stupid idea. And I'm very fortunate to be alive. Um, <laughs> uh, so anyway, um, he gets now fired from that job. He goes home, is hiding the fact that he's fired. He's like in a good mood because he's doing drugs with this new person who he jumped into the plate glass window with, uh, who treats him like shit. And then he, uh, Gus, by the way, guy, Peter Green, who's a great actor, um, plays this guy. Yeah, um, he was really good. He's amazing. Uh, what is he in a lot of stuff? Is he I character always remember him from actor? Usual Suspects, like yes. he's like Redfoot or whatever. He's like this person that's yeah. in the, But he's he's got a great look and he's a really good actor. Totally. Um, so then- he gets all this praise from Elizabeth Hurley for how all the work that he's doing and how, you know, she's so proud of him for changing. And that combined with the fact that she tells him she's pregnant causes him to really like go and get high, like in front of her and like yeah. he's exposed and she kicks him out. It sends him on a bender. I think it's the pregnancy is the bomb drop of like, oh my God, this is coming for me. But I actually also think that subtly less you know less explicit in the movie is just the fact that she's like i'm really proud of you for the work that you're doing yeah and he knows he's hot totally um and i think that can be as someone who was pretending to be sober at times and my family was telling me how proud they were and and other people who cared about me when i knew i was hiding that i was still actively using um that can be a more devastating internal thing to happen uh, even than like finding out you're about to become a father. I think. Absolutely. Um, I, so, I agree with that. I uh, think Again, the dissonance of like how, you know, how I don't seen. think it's portrayed that way in the movie, but you, your insight into that, I think is really what it was for um, sure. Yes. Yes. Uh, that's whatever my, my two cents. So then he gets kicked out. She lets him come to the um, uh, birth, the labor and delivery room anyway, even though she knows he's been high. She wants to be there for the birth of his child. He is in the bathroom getting high during it. I actually, when my first child was born, did have the nurse pound on the door and tell me I had to get in there because the baby was being born. I was not using drugs, but I was doing a podcast over the phone. Oh my And that is my God. heroine. And <laughs> <laughs> and that is why my life is bottoming out. Did you miss? Uh, Did no, you... I didn't miss. I didn't okay, miss. It was just like, it. I was like, I'm going to go and like kind of zoom into this podcast with, it, it, you know, it was Tim Heidecker. Um, and, well. <laughs> and, and I, and then the nurse was like, get the fuck in here. Dude, <laughs> I, like, I, I have to say though, your role during the labor process is a lot of time doing nothing. Like it's. But you got to be there. I know, of course, but. I did feel bad for Paul. Like after I gave birth, he was like, I think I might have to go get something to eat now. And I was like, go, go. It's fine. We ordered food. We ordered food right away. But then the next day I did like walk to breakfast and it was a little bit like weird. But it's like, you, you know, you're I you sleep in like a chair. Um, right. Um, did Paul watch the baby get born? Yeah, I had an emergency C-section. I oh. had a very difficult childbirth. I, it's a different podcast. Different podcast, different podcast. But yes, Paul was there and I was in labor for a while and pushing and he he was a champ. Yeah, hell yeah. He was my doula. That that rocks. Um, so then the baby is young. Uh, Elizabeth Hurley ends up in a situation where she 
has no childcare and is basically like, can you for one evening take this kid and just like not fuck up entirely? He's like, yes, absolutely. He brings the baby to a drug deal. Um, he gets ripped off at the drug deal. Uh, he then um, gets high with the baby in the car, is driving, gets pulled over, hits the curb as he gets pulled over. He's just like me for real, for real. <laughs> um, have you ever been pulled over in the car while high? Did that ever happen to you when you were using? Yes, but I wasn't driving. I was in shotgun. But the person, both me and the person were like on special K. Uh-huh. Which, by the way, makes you feel like you're a thousand pounds and like can't like walk. It's the most disassociative. Like I, I, we didn't, we got, he's told us to just go. This is in Long Island. I don't know. I am so lucky. Yeah. I'm so bewildered by the shit that. You survived. Yes. But yeah, I, I didn't get, I love getting pulled over now and they have like. I haven't seen one in a while, but when they pull people over and they're like, when's the last time you drank? And I'm like, October 12th, 2003. <laughs> <laughs> Funny. Uh, uh, um, so, uh, so what are they he, called? Sorry. Like what? checkpoints. Sorry. Oh yeah. D yeah. That's what so, I meant. Yeah. D yeah. DUI checkpoints. Yeah. I'll tell my one big getting pulled over story. Please. One of my stories. I completed one semester of college school called Drew University in Madison, New Jersey. Yeah. I went there. I did a semester. I did okay. To give people context, if you're watching the video, I right now hover around 190. At the time that I went to college, I was probably like 160 and in the first semester lost 30 pounds. So I was a skeleton. <laughs> I was so unwell and didn't think anything of it, but I was just like, I was doing a lot of right. a lot of uppers and I would stay up for three days and I would sleep for one. I would never eat. And I was like, so like Oh my like, God, do you have a scary. picture of yourself? There aren't many pictures from that time. Right. Uh, but I, I so will see if I can find one. I was um, curious. So I then, uh, I think I thought I looked good, but I, <laughs> but I, I finished the first semester, came back for the second semester, and everybody kind of knew something was wrong. I ended up withdrawing from school and because I was going to flunk every class and then uh, just like went home. So I, I never finished school. That was my entire school experience. But I also went pretty crazy when I was there because the first time I didn't have any parents or any accountability. I could just, I realized this, I cannot show up to class. I can get high all day you know, nobody's going to do anything about it. Yeah. I was with a townie, a local townie. Uh-huh. Who would come with his car to campus and we would go drive around and get high. And he pulled into a gas station, bought a pack of cigarettes, pulled out. He had dropped someone off earlier, given them a little baggie. I'm sitting in his front seat. He goes, uh, he has an, an ounce broken up into eighths. And he goes, will you hold this while I'm driving? <laughs> I go, yeah. So I tuck it into the front of my pants. So, <laughs> so I... I'm driving with him. We get pulled over truly for no reason. The cops probably know this kid, but like, right, right. they're like, the, the guy comes up to the window and goes like, you pulled in that gas station like you thought it was on fire or something. Oh like, and it's like, that's, you're supposed to say, where's the fire? <laughs> <laughs> and, 
<laughs> like you wouldn't pull into a gas station that was on fire. It right. would be blowing it's the last up. Last place you'd pull into. But it was just like you, you pulled into the gas station too fast. Like it was like so weird. Like they watched us do that and they pulled us over on the way out. But of course, the man in the driver's seat, GIF. His name was GIF. GIF being Sick GIF. Nickname. Who I had given, uh, I had given him like a pillow earlier that day, just had it in his little driver's side door. Uh-huh. So they see that and they're like, do you have a prescription for that? And he's like, yeah, but it's not on me. That's crazy that, that they ask the, that. Then he's like, they're like, okay, well, it can't be out of the prescription bottle anyway. Then they pull him out of the car. They're talking to him for a while. I'm sitting here with intent oh to God. sell on my waist. <sighs> this is a story, by the way, I will say very much so everyone knows that I know. This is a story of white privilege that happens Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have it on my waist. They finally, they talk to Gift for a while. Then they come over to the car and they say, you need to get out. I get out. I walk over to the side and I do something that I was taught to do by my father after the first time I got pulled over by the police and was, you know, technically arrested. My father is a retired police officer. And he <gasps> my, said, did you tell them, the floor. did you tell them that I was a police officer when I got pulled over? And I said, no, I didn't. He said, when you are dealing with the police, they will at some point say, I'm sorry, but I have to ask you to blank. Sorry, but I need to ask you to step out of the car. When they say that, you say, no need to apologize. I understand you're just doing your job. My father is a police officer. Jaw on the floor. I had said that effectively in the past and had them say things like, here's a verbal warning. Right. <laughs> um, so I say, I understand, You know, no need to apologize. My father's a police officer. As I'm saying this, what I don't know is I have stood up off a seat that there is just a dime bag sitting on. Oh my god! That is full. So they're see they're looking at the drugs as I'm talking to them. They're like, "Cool, cool, cool." In New Jersey, and I'm like, "No, in Connecticut." They're like, "Okay," but like they don't know him. Right. Like when I did it in Connecticut, it's like, well, they have to interact with him at some right. point. So they bring me over to the car. They come out. They hold up the drugs <gasps> and they say, "These drugs are in your car. One of you is coming to the station with us right now." Which one of you will it be? O M, actual G. I turn to GIF. <laughs> I am not interested. We're both fucked up anyway. Right. I am not interested in being subtle in any way. Totally. Because I know, GIF, I have all of your drugs on my person and they will find it if I go in, but they have not to this point found it. And I say to GIF in this insanely over top of the way, GIF, that's not mine. That is not mine. Okay. And he goes, I know it's crazy officer. It's not his, but it's not mine either. <laughs> and I go, no gift. No, that's not mine. Listen, that can't be mine. And he goes like, he goes like, it's the weirdest thing. I believe him guys that it's not his, but I also know it's not mine. And they, and I'm going, Gif, it's in your car. Because it's like, he's going in. Right, he's going. He is going in. It's in his car. So I'm like, you have, like, I'm just going like, take the fucking hit for it. Like, I think if roles were reversed, like, I'll take in with that because I have it, because it's broken into different bags, I have, it, this is like a felony on my body. You know, <sighs> this is before weed was legal. And they go over and they say, we're going to need to pat you down. Because they do need to take him in because it's his car. Yeah. And they don't have to take me in. Right. So they want to find something else on me. So they put me up against the car. Oh my God. And they pat down the sides of my legs and they feel my pockets 
and they reach their hand into the back of my waistband and they run their fingers across the back of my like underwear waistband uh-huh. and they turn me around and they pat me down up the front and up the inside and they fucking, you know, grab my junk and uh-huh. they, and they reach for, and this is why this is a totally privileged story. They reach for the front of my waistband and I'm wearing a hooded sweatshirt that has like a kangaroo pocket. Uh huh. And I, and other people probably would have been assaulted for doing this before he reaches my waistband. I grab the kangaroo pocket and I pull it open and I expose it sideways and I pull my shirt out from my body. And I was like up against the curb and I like had one foot back from the curb a little bit. So he kind of missed when I reached and I showed him the front of my waistband, but in a way that you couldn't like see. And I went, hey, man, I have nothing on me. You guys have to fucking cut it out. And he like took a beat and he looked at me and he like looked at what I was showing him and he went, all right, drive your friend's car home. You'll pick him up at the station. Wait a minute. Where was the weed? It was in tucked into the front of like my boxer shorts, like in my waistband. So it was like if it, you know, and it was so like you right just here, went like, like this below my belly button. So I, I pulled my shirt like this and like held it open sideways and just held it away from me so that it was sort of like I was showing him, but you couldn't see wow. anything there. And it was like and covered it up. And he was just like, all right, drive your friend's car home. But how did you know? That he wasn't then going to be like, okay, thanks for sharing. And like, I didn't, you didn't. I you didn't. were just like, but I had to do something. Try right. Of like, well, if this right. works, it'll be over. Right. Oh if my I, God. If I hold still, he's going to touch the front of my waistband. Yeah. If I try this and he does it anyway, okay. But there's a possibility that maybe this combined with the fact that my dad's a cop and like I am a student at the local college and this kid's not or whatever. Yeah. Like is will make them a little less likely to like really crack down on me. And so he let me drive home. Um, wow, that's so scary. Yeah. And I can't believe that. I mean, that's a good story. And you told it really well. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> there's a there's a tiny epilogue, actually, Please. which is as we talk about, you know, getting, you know, whether getting in trouble can be good for you and finding consequences. Here's a spot where. You might say, well, maybe those the consequences would have made you get clean earlier or something. But what I'll say is later that year, there was a huge drug bust at the campus and a bunch of people got arrested. It was like on the news, like this like big bust. And it was all the like main drug dealers and possibly it was a result of Gift being arrested that night. I don't know. But people people knew that I had almost been arrested with him and thought that maybe I was an informant of some kind. Mm. Oh my God, Giff was an informant? I don't know. I don't know. But somebody got somebody obviously got arrested and said, here are the big drug dealers in this college. Then what happened after that was in recovery years later, I ended up befriending someone who was one of the people who was arrested from that, you know, possibly from wow. that night. And had had to go to jail and like did get sober, but had, you know, some real difficulties and challenges. And as so many times happens when you're in recovery, it's just a there, but for the grace, <laughs> like yeah. that it's so easily could have been me. And I really got to see firsthand, like, it's like, yes, you want consequences, but um, they also can be very devastating. 
I was like selling drugs for a while mm -hmm. to support my habit. Yeah. And I was also keeping shoeboxes of my friend's cocaine in yep. my house and belts of ecstasy. And then I was using their cocaine and then I was selling their cocaine. And then I started to get really, really paranoid. And every time, every car I saw on Ludlow Street that had somebody sitting in it, I mm -hmm. thought was the FBI. And no, you're just being paranoid because you're, you've coke in your pores. Yeah. The two people who kept their stuff at my house got arrested. So it could have very well been the feds. I called one of them saying that I was scared and he came the week before he got arrested and took everything out of my house. Yeah. I think I dodged a bullet. I don't yeah. know. I don't know if I was paranoid. I was paranoid, but they, yeah. one of, it was great. It was a lot. Back to the movie. So anyway, this is like kind of the end of the story. He, um, he goes back to LA after like getting out of the hotel room with Maria Bello. He sees his kid. It's obviously very tense with the mother and everything. Um, she then appears at his door to be like, you know, let's uh, continue our affair. Um, and then she leaves in the night. Uh, I don't know because the framing device mm -hmm. itself we've said is the weakest part. This ending isn't super satisfying because it's just like she writes him a letter and it's like, well, I never was in invested in this the way I was in the other people in the story. Um, so yeah. the ending's a little soft, but we get these talk show appearances and the great line where he says, people always ask me, what's the worst thing heroin ever made you do? And I always say showing up on Maury. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like him on Maury Povich. And I'm sure it's all like real lines but from he, his thing. His voiceover is over the thing that he says on Maury. Like, yeah. So what was so bad about him being on Maury? Well, he's saying it's like you're debasing yourself to appear on Maury Povich. Like that—that oh. that is more. That is oh, yeah. more low <laughs> and like more <laughs> beneath yeah, him <laughs> than like driving around with his kid while he's on heroin. <laughs> that, okay. So he's—it's a—it's a just a little bit of a joke and. Okay. And, <laughs> um, I was like, well, you know, I don't know. You're promoting your book. Give yourself yeah. a break. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. Uh, he did it. But then he talks about, he has a little monologue at the end, which is about the terror of surviving and how like life and sobriety and paying a gas bill can be more terrifying than like a narcotic de detox hell or whatever, uh -huh. um, which like, of course we know now as parents and adults, like, yes, it's a, a little bit relatable. I yeah. love my life. But as we said, like when you are uh, um, in the addiction world, your life is pretty simple. It's pretty yes. binary. You've won job. And like now <laughs> in the life of accountability and people being able to depend on you, which is like a huge reward. Yes. Um, it is also. Scary. Very scary. Yeah. I mean, we grew up trying, like I I figured out, I, I heard this, you say this, but like I didn't start, I didn't pay taxes until I was 33. Like, I didn't know how to do anything. Yeah. And especially when I first got sober. I mean, it's, but, you know, growing pains, I guess. No, it's it's true. You're in a state of arrested development. Um, uh, or for myself, I can say that I definitely was, that I started drinking and doing drugs at like 12 and 13. Yeah. And that uh, my emotional maturity was not 
drastically different from a 13 year old at the time that I got sober at 23 yeah. uh, or even five years into sobriety Seriously. Um, that like it was so much was focused on just like trying to cobble some actual Time. life together yeah. uh, that um, a lot of the fundamental lessons uh, had not been learned. And uh, we now take them as they come. Yeah, I mean, it's hard. Life is extremely difficult. This world is one big spiritual malady. So what we do as human beings is difficult. Well, so everyone, please uh, remember that life is difficult and keep in mind that everything you've heard has been merely the rantings what? of um, uh, two lunatics. Uh, yeah, my smart so thought. Life is hard. <laughs> so take what you need and uh, throw the rest out the window, as Leslie Arfin likes to say. Thank you, Leslie. No, that is not a good way to end it. It's like the worst. Will you end it? Um, listen to Filling the Void. It's my podcast. It We don't do it anymore. The network folded, but it's fun. It's about hobbies. God bless. Okay, bye. I love you. Bye, bye, bye.